This podcast is brought to you by the American Thoracic Society. We help the world breathe. Hello, I'm Michael Lanspa. Thank you for joining us in our Out of the Blue podcast. Today, we're going to discuss an article by Dr. Yahya Shahabi and colleagues entitled Dexmedetomidine and Propofol Sedation in Critically Ill Patients and Dose-Associated 90-Day Mortality, a Secondary Cohort Analysis of a Randomized Controlled Trial, SPICE-3. I'm joined today by the lead author of the SPICE-3 investigators, Dr. Yahya Shahabi who's a professor at Monash Health School of Clinical Sciences in Monash University, as well as at the University of New South Wales in Australia. Uh, He's a clinical trialist and has been leading the SPICE investigation for over 12 years now. Welcome and thank you for joining me. Thank you, Michael, for the opportunity. So I'd like to start by pointing out that your study is a secondary cohort analysis of the SPICE-3 trial, which was published in the New England Journal a few years ago. And that was an open-label randomized controlled trial that compared dexmedetomidine to usual care. And it found no difference in 90-day mortality. So what was the reason for doing this secondary analysis? Michael, uh, when we do studies, we usually either go for a a narrow population with a, a smaller sample size, or sometimes we go for a broader inclusion if we're including large sample size. Large sample size have a lot of benefits, gives you power, gives you more certainty about the findings. So for the SPAS 3 trial, we randomized 4,000 patients. We had a fairly broad inclusion criteria, which meant that the patient, although they may look balanced at a table one of the transcript, but when you actually look a bit further into the you know, clusters or cohorts of these patients, you find that there are some heterogeneity in these patients. And according to this heterogeneity, there is a difference in the response of these population of those patients to the treatment that's given in either arm of the study. We, in, in studies of this nature, of course, we do a, a priori specified subgroup analysis when we did that in SPARS 3 and the forest plot, which was also published in the New Zealand article, showed that there was a significant heterogeneity and interaction with age, where patients who were older than 63.7 years had a lower mortality with dexmedetomidine, and those who had aged less than that had a higher mortality with dexmedetomidine. So we conducted a, that, that was basically a reason for us to look further into the study population to look, is there any other heterogeneity groups that are there? So that's where the secondary analysis came through. I think when you have a study that has 4,000 patients, heterogeneity is actually a good thing to have because it allows you with some degree of precision to look into the effect of the treatment on different clusters of population. And that has actually allowed us, because of the sample size, allowed us to investigate further in not just in age-related differences, but also differences according to operative status, differences according to specific groups like sepsis and not sepsis, specific groups like cardiovascular admission or non-cardiovascular admissions, all of which are really 
highly relevant to the use of dexmedetomidine in or sedative agents and their interaction with outcome in those clusters of population. I really appreciate your comment about, about heterogeneity. You noted in that trial that uh, the younger patients were more likely to die with dexmedetomidine and the older patients were more likely to survive. And I saw that you'd hypothesized there might have been some effect of the dexmedetomidine versus propofol in patients who received combination therapy. What was the rationale for thinking those drugs might have different effects? The first thing is that if you go into any intensive care unit today, you will find very few patients receiving a singular agent for sedation. Most patients receive combinations of sedative and analgesics to achieve a particular sedation target as dictated by clinicians. In this past trial, although the target rest was minus two to plus one, clinician chose according to specific clinical needs, to have patients deeper than that. We know that dexmedetomidine is not designed to produce deep sedation. Therefore, a clinician chose to add propofol or midazolam in some patients uh, to achieve the desired level of sedation. So there was a significant addition of propofol on top of dexmedetomidine in those patients who were in the dexmedetomidine arm. We know that both dexmedetomidine and propofol, although they're class as sedatives, but they work differently. They have different pharmacokinetics. They have different pharmacodynamics. Dexmedetomidine works on the alpha-2 receptors, which is widely spread with different intensity in most body organs. It has a multi-system effect. We know that propofol, on the other hand, its primary effect outside the neural nervous uh, system is affecting hemodynamics and other things like, you know, lipid, lipid and hyperlipidemia and liver functions. So we hypothesize that depending on the dose of individual drugs used in such a combination, that dose itself may have had an effect in producing the outcome that we saw. That was the hypothesis that we looked at, and that's why we conducted the study that was published in the Blue Journal to investigate that hypothesis. So that's great. I think to do that study, you'd probably expect that you'd need some variation in propofol received. How, how similar were the, the two arms in ICE-3 in regards to receiving propofol? When, when we restricted the population to those who only received dexmedetomidine and supplemental propofol, and we look at the table one in the, in the Blue Journal manuscript, there is little difference between the two patients, between the two groups of patients. And I think they were quite well balanced. Uh, there was 1177 of them in the total population. And if you divide them between those younger patients who received dexmedetomidine and older patients who received dexmedetomidine, you find that if you take the age difference out, most of what's there is fairly balanced between the two groups. So we, we're quite comfortable that those two groups are fairly similar apart from the age difference. Of course, the age difference bring other things with it. But if you look at the main things like Apache taking the, the age score out, will give you comparable Apache 
uh, you look at the percentage of people who had an operative admission, they're about the same as 65%. Those from emergency admission, like operative emergency, about 20, 22%. So there was a fair, fairly balanced group of people on both sides. The only one which is probably reflecting on the lung function of older people is the difference in the PF ratio. The PF ratio was statistically higher in the younger group than in the older group when we look at those who received dexmedetomidine and supplemental probable. That's a great description of the uh, study population. Uh, I'm curious, with regards to this Blue Journal manuscript study, how did you go about selecting the study population? You started off from about 4,000 patients, and your final study was uh, about 11, what, 1,177 patients. How did you narrow that down? Yeah, we actually did a, a fair bit of simulations to find this, this study population. So, so we initially thought we were going to include everybody who received dexmedetomidine and received supplemental sedatives, like whether it's propofol or midazolam. Then we realized that midazolam was not as prevalent as using propofol, that propofol was primarily the main supplemental sedative that was used. And, and we also realized that adding midazolam to the equation will add substantial complexity to the analysis that is already complex. And we thought that if we focus more on what's really described and recommended by sedation guidelines, that it's used dex and propofol in preference to benzodiazepines, we thought that if we focus on that as a, as, as a combination and as a population, we will actually produce more relevant data to current practice than focusing on the patient who received additional midazolam as well, knowing that that complexity is just going to make the analysis you know, more complex and not, not easier to understand, and it won't be relevant to current practice in most intensive cases. So you'd mentioned the treatments here of dexmedetomidine and propofol and midazolam. Were there any other analgesics or sedatives that patients may have received as part of the intervention or as co-intervention controls? Yeah, we, I mean, the, as you know, Michael, the SPAS-3 was an open-label trial. We looked into every single agent that could be used. There was other agents that were used, like ketamine, for example. The use of ketamine, although was like in single digits until the percentage of, of patients used. So it, it wasn't like massively used to impact what has happened. The use of additional opioids was primarily fentanyl in most institutions. So almost, almost 100% of the patients received fentanyl. There was some patients in other countries outside Western medicine that was used morphine, but the, the effect of that on sedation wasn't really something that would impact the findings that we got. So the, the difference in the opioid use wasn't really significant for us to include that in the analysis. So most of what was used is either simple percentages or was rapid, you know, widespread use across every single patient that would not make any difference to actually address it on its own. And do you think that having an open label trial uh, may have had some interaction or some effect on the treatments? No question, no question. I think there is no question that in an open label trial, 
people behave to what they expect from a study medication running. So a clinician or a nurse at the bedside, when they know what's running, whether it's dexmethotomidine or not dexmethotomidine, they behave differently at the bedside. And that may influence their, their attitude toward ventilator weaning, for example. It may influence their attitude towards how much supplemental sedative they may add. It may influence their attitude in terms of re reaction to certain adverse events that may happen. We, we saw that in this study. And, and also, the other thing which is really important is that besides it's making an impact on how clinicians and bedside carers' attitude and behavior is, also the reporting system of adverse events so also seem to be more towards the intervention arm, where there will be higher reporting of what happened in the intervention arm rather than in the controlled arm. Um, well, they will say, oh, well, this happens all the time. So I think uh, the open label definitely comes with significant drawbacks. And that's why in our current study, we opted for a double-blind placebo-controlled model or design to avoid all these confounders. I agree with the approach that you and your colleagues chose. This was a, a complicated question of trying to determine the impact of different propofol and dexmedetomidine dose combinations. I'm wondering if you could kind of elaborate a little bit more about how you modeled that, uh, how, how you modeled the impact, how you handled age interaction, or those possibilities of confounders that you had mentioned. Yeah, the, the way we went around it is, if I make it more simple for people to understand, is that if you consider a clinical scenario where there is a patient who needs to be sedated more, into a lower or a higher or a deeper level of sedation, that patient, for example, is receiving propofol and you wanted to add a second agent. So there are two possibilities. You may say, okay, I'm going to rank the propofol up to a very high dose, or I'm going to leave the propofol at say 100 milligrams an hour and I'm going to add dexmedetomidine on top of the propofol. And then I may increase the dose of dexmedetomidine to a very high dose to see what I can achieve. In converse, if you have somebody who is on dexmedetomidine and you're running, say, at 0.7 marks per kilo per hour, and you want it to produce deeper level of sedation, then you would say, okay, I'm going to leave that at 0.7 and I'm going to add a propofol, and then I'm going to increase the dose of propofol up to the level that I need to achieve my sedation target. So what we did, we simulated that on the population that we had. So we started by dividing the patients, by stratifying the patients into those who had kind of like equal amounts of or equal doses of propofol, and that's the first stratification. Then we, we restratified them. That's why it's called double stratification. They were restratified again into the groups of patients that had on top of the propofol an increasing dose of dexmedetomidine. Then we, we did the exercise in reverse. And that produced a group of patients who've had dexmedetomidine running at a equivalent dose in stratified group. And then 
ristratifad them into the group of patients who received at increasing doses of propofol. So we ended up with essentially two major populations. One that had a steady state propofol with an increasing dose of dexmedetomidine and a steady state dexmedetomidine with an increasing dose of propofol. Then we assessed the, the mortality at 90 days in, the, in each group of those patients compared to the entire population. And that's the hazard ratio that you would see in the, in the figure that's provided in the manuscript. And what we showed from that analysis is that if you have propofol on a steady state and you increase dexmedetomidine in younger patients, you're likely to have higher mortality. While if, if you do the reverse, you have a dexmedetomidine and you increase your propofol to achieve T-polyper sedation, you have lower mortality. This effect was not present in older people. It was only present in younger patients. Now, for us to see whether this is a true thing that we see, we looked at the data in through multiple, you know, multiple sides. So we did a sensitivity analysis on patients who were there in RCU and still alive in the study at 48 hours. Now, by doing so, we exclude two important populations. One is a population that was extubated early because they were not that sick before 48 hours, or the population that was very sick and died very early before 48 hours. We believe that those two populations, if they die within the first 48 hours, are probably not something we can do anything about. But once they pass the 48 hours, you take that population, then the results become much clearer. You have a clear signal for both increasing mortality with increasing dex on top of propofol and reducing mortality with increasing propofol on top of dex. We also looked at it from a logistic regression point of view, where we did a logistic regression based on an increments of the dose. And we found that increments of the dose of dex or the dose of propofol and their interaction together also showed the same result. So whichever way you, you know, you flip the dice, you get the same result. I think that gives us a bit of a comfort that this analysis is not just a chance analysis, but it's actually, it, it reflects what the analysis has shown. Yeah, I really appreciated the approach you took because this was such a complicated problem and you not only, I think, answered it well, but also did those extra analyses as essentially confirmatory tests. I'm, I'm curious if you have any idea, like, why do you think young people had a different response to escalating propofol versus escalating dexmedetomidine? I think the young people are harder to sedate. So they required significantly higher doses of dexmedetomidine, propofol, midazolam, and analgesics. 
whichever whatever thing you look at, they require substantially higher doses of every drug to achieve the desired level of sedation. So I think that high dose combination are probably past the sweet spot for that combination to produce benefit and swung the curve back into harm, which, which at the moment we can't say why, we, we can only hypothesize or speculate that perhaps the combination of high dose decks on top propofol has made a, a fairly synergistic effect on the probably the hemodynamic effects of propofol of dexmedetomidine, or that the high dose dexmedetomidine, you know, had some humoral or an endocrine response that we did not measure. And I think that's a, an important question that we are hoping to be able to answer either in experimental setting or in future trials where we can actually look specifically at those physiological variables. Well, I think that's a great explanation. I'm also wondering how much do you think the, I guess the fact that physicians, this was open label, that physicians may have treated patients differently based off their expected likelihood to die, whether or not that may have had some effect of this being more uh, an association or correlation rather than causation. Yeah, that, that's a great question, Michael. I mean, there are two things here I wanted to the, the, the listeners to this to understand. Number one is that the simulation that we did is not what actually happened in the trial. So in the trial, clinicians did not behave the way we described it in the analysis. That's one thing that's important to understand. Secondly, for clinicians to request that some patient population need to be deeply sedated, they are achieving that deep sedation with a propofol while they're not achieving it with increasing dexmedetomidine. Despite that, they're still getting a mortality difference even with achieving deeper sedation with propofol, where would you expect that those patients would have a higher mortality because assumingly they are sicker and the clinician wanted to be more deeply sedated. So it's quite a, it's quite a, a, a complex phenomenon here. And I think it's, you know, the, the only thing I could say is that definitely achieving deeper sedation was not, the clinician did not kind of like choose which patient to add increase the dex or increase propofol. I think they just done it according to what they thought was clinically tolerable in those patients. And that's how we ended up with two different populations. Yeah, that's a great point. I, you know, the Bayesian in me, I guess would say there's been several previous studies that have looked at different sedation therapies that have not really demonstrated any difference in mortality. And this study of yours has shown, a, I think, a fairly robust finding. How should viewers or listeners interpret this study in the setting of all of those other studies that don't really demonstrate a mortality difference? Well, look, I think the one of the major limitations to most previous studies is that 
they had a much smaller sample size. Our study had a sample size that is, you know, greater by a magnitude to other studies in simulation, ten randomized trial they're talking about. So I think that sample size has allowed us to have that precision in looking at the different outcomes, you know, in different populations and to see the, the, the results that we've shown. And I think that's why previous trials, number one, had lower sample size. Number two, because of this lower sample size, could not with any precision look at any heterogeneity effect. Number three, and that's really, really important, is that our trial started with the storm hitting the patient. Most other trials started after the storm has passed. So they missed the storm. We basically went in the eye of the storm and looked at what actually happened. For the first time, we were able to show that doctors in 74 RCUs around the world at large choose to deeply sedate their patients, at least 60% of them in the first 48 hours. This has been replicated in many other studies since then, not on sedation, but studies that looked at that early phase and found exactly the same. So I think these limitations of previous trials is the reason why we could not find a, you know, a mortality difference. They were unable to dissect into the different populations because of the very small sample size. Well, I think Findings like yours will help shape future studies on how we approach uh, sedation trials. I wanted to, um, I guess, ask about analgesia. Now, I noted that about 70% of the patients in your study were uh, receiving opioids of some sort. And the more recent Society of Critical Care Medicine 2018 guidelines, the PADIS guidelines, that talked about protocolized analgesia, sedation, and some some investigators or some experts advocate that over uh, sedation. And I'm wondering how either we should interpret your results that emphasize sedation in light of those, uh, those recommendations or those perceptions, or I guess what I'm looking for is uh, general advice for the critical care doc who's thinking about giving dexmedetomidine or propofol and how we should interpret your study in light of that versus giving opioids. Yeah, I think uh, the, the very important thing, Michael, and I, want to be, uh, I was part of the PADIS guideline task force. Mm -hmm. uh, it is really important to emphasize that analgesia should be used for pain relief. Dot. So analgesia first principle still holds all the time. It has significant benefits. There's no question about that. But to use analgesia as a, analgesics as a sedative, I think that's stretching it significantly further into the non-evidence-based space. The, the recent Danish and Scandinavian trial, the no-sedation trial, is, is basically addressing the issue whether we can rely on analgesedation as a way of sedating patients compared with standard care in Denmark and some of the Scandinavian countries. And it clearly showed that using analgesics as sedative is not really the right way to go. 
those patients had significantly higher agitation, significantly higher device removal, and a lot of other complications. I think we should use horses, you know, horses should be used for courses, just simple analgesia for and pain relief. And if you wanted to sedate people, use sedative agents as recommended by the PADS guidelines itself, that you can use propofol or dexamethamidine in preference to benzodiazepines in general. So that's, that's the first point. The second point, despite the fact that there's been a lot of talk about deep sedation and light sedation, this is a general principle about light sedation being advocated for all patients. We don't argue with those principles. However, we must remember that at some stage and some patients, deeper level of sedation is desired. We saw that in the COVID pandemic, and we see that in a lot of other studies. We're seeing that in the first 48 hours of patient illness, that clinicians like their patients to be much more sedated than what we like them to be at minus one or minus two. But they also must remember that if you're gonna do that, you must monitor the sedation depth and you must make deeper sedation as short as possible. That's how I would take what our findings suggest. And in light of the guidelines and other sedation guidelines that are available, I think those are excellent recommendations, and I'm very grateful that you mentioned them. You'd also brought up the COVID pandemic, and I think it's interesting that the SPICE-3 study occurred prior to the COVID pandemic. And as you mentioned, we've had a lot of changes uh, in care based on that. Are there any insights that you might have from the past few years that might have affected how you might apply your findings or perhaps changes in care that you might have incorporated if you were to repeat that uh, study now? Yeah, I think the COVID pandemic has given us a significant challenge in terms of sedating patients. I mean, people were deeply sedated because we were afraid of them coughing or afraid of them having a tube coming out and exposing staff, which is, you know, reasonable expectation. But at, at the uh, but at the cost of the cost of that was significant for the patient themselves, where patients were deeply sedated for, you know, days on and they were waking up in significant delirium, waking up in significant, you know, other issues. They were not mobilized at the right time. You know, we did a lot of things, the complete opposite to what, you know, we've been breaching for the last 20 years. And I think the pendulum swung all the way back to, you know, 20 years ago practice. And I think I can I can see that now the pendulum is kind of like bringing back to the middle, which I think is a healthy thing. I think the COVID pandemic reminded us of how important it is to, you know, appropriately sedate patients for the shortest possible time and treat and monitor the important things like sedation depth and pain level and delirium early so that it can be managed adequately. I think uh, we will learn a lot from the COVID pandemic. The one thing that I would say though, that we have lived in an era where we had like religious belief that deep sedation is gonna kill people. 
I think we may have to revisit that notion and say, well, in some patients for a short time, that's not bad, but make sure it is for the shortest possible time, but monitor it and treat the consequences of it appropriately. Well, I think that's excellent perspective and is a great note to end on. This will conclude our Out of the Blue podcast. I'd like to thank our guest, Dr. Shahabi, for a great discussion of his study on dexmedetomidine and propofol sedation. This study is not only a great reminder about the importance we should place on sedation decisions, but I also think it's a great example of methods that we can use to answer complex questions on heterogeneity of treatment effects. And I expect we're going to see more and more studies like this as we try to be more efficient with our research dollars for future investigations. Congratulations on the study and thank you so much, Dr. Shahabi. It's my pleasure, Michael. You have a nice day. Thank you. This is Michael Lanspa for the American Journal of Respiratory and Critical Care Medicine. 